we have learned through hard experience over a number of years of doing this podcast that uh, if you're wondering how many times Skype can reset itself, the answer is an infinite number of times. (laughs) Well, I don't think we can ever demonstrate that. No, but we could certainly uh, give uh, evidence for for making that inference reasonably. No. Okay. No. Uh, Rather than debate Humean (laughs) induction with you, um, as delightful as that prospect sounds. um, I mean, we can only demonstrate it for finite n. That's all I'm saying. And, you know, and I realize the mathematician what, in you is going to insist on that no matter how many times I try uh, to talk you into a pragmatic approach that's different I'm from trying that. to get into it. I'm just trying to roll into this one. I, and I, I, I feel you, as they say. Yeah. I don't, you know, Scott, so we, you know, we, we have an ongoing health corner here now that, now that um, Joe and I are, I think, officially old, each of us, separately. <laughs> and, and, and the joke is eventually the show is going to be nothing but health complaints of various kinds. <laughs> and um, and and this week, well, I've got. I'll, I'll give an update on my eyes a little bit later. Oh, um, okay. Uh, uh, spoiler: I was right. Joe was wrong. But um, more importantly, um, neither of us got enough sleep last night for for different reasons. Apparently, I that's guess. true. Yeah. I mean, it couldn't be the same reason, I guess. But you know, presumably not. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I got a little cappuccino here. I've got um, I've got a crystal clear connection to Scott. I mean, Scott, you sound smooth. You sound good. It sounds like you've got like some kind of professional setup. Apparently, you're just talking into a browser. This is amazing. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting fueled up on, uh, and we're going to talk about law reviews. And that's going to get me hot under the collar. Exactly. So, um, so I'm ready to go. I guess what I'm saying is I'm ready. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was quite a message to pack into a, a very long. Uh, speech there. That was great. Oh, was that long? That was great. It was positively Shakespearean. Oh, boy. Uh, but let us proceed. Oh, <laughs> we're just going to jump right in, huh? Now that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have our bits. We Scott, have our I little shticks, <laughs> and his shtick is to criticize me for wanting to start no matter when I actually want to start. Uh, Scott, this is, I don't know if you know, but we are a very, we are a professional show, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> which weekly ish will discuss in very serious ways legal scholarship and um, its, uh, you know, the latest in legal scholarship, its merits, its demerits. And, um, and that obviously brought us to you. And so, anyway, t- take, you know, th- all this nonsense is to take nothing away from your work. Okay. We don't want anything that we do here to, to, uh, to impact negatively on you, do we, Joe? Uh, no, and how could it? Because <laughs> everyone knows that we're, that right. we have our challenges. All right. And that Scott Dodson does not have our challenges because uh, he's Scott Dodson. <laughs> this is your way of introducing. Yes. From UC Hastings all the way in San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. How, do, how should we get started on this? Well, the, the, the paper that uh, I wanted to talk to Scott about uh, is actually something he co-wrote. And, and I'm interested to hear about that, that the co-authorship uh, thing there with someone named Jacob Hirsch. Um, uh, and the title it sort of tells the story, A Model Code of Conduct for Student-Edited Law Journal Submissions. So I think, um, Scott, it, let me take a stab at, at sort of the thesis here and, and you let me know what, what I'm getting wrong. So it's it seems to me that you, you are laying out the idea that uh, there's this opportunity for developing norms uh, between and among law professors and law students in this enterprise that we all engage in with this sort of general law review uh, as, a, as a venue for publishing law scholarship. And that the opportunity for norm development is something you're trying to step into and say with this uh, thing presented as a model code, which I think is a, a really fascinating and, and great way to try to present these ideas, actually. Um, uh, 
sort of laying out a series of commitments that uh, normative commitments that that law professors and law students should should make uh, with and for one another in again in this sort of j- joint enterprise of producing legal scholarship in the form of law reviews. Well, let me and, let me can can I just ask you to back up for a minute because we got a bunch of listeners who are not law professors or even law students and um, and I think. Part of this, you know, uh, you know, don't turn it off now, right? Because <laughs> uh, part of what we're doing here is uh, um, is talking with Scott about a obviously a very particular form of scholarship, a very particular form of conveying ideas, and some problems that have arisen in that form. And Scott's got a number of like solutions trying to you know foster norm development. But I think it would be appropriate too at the beginning to kind of lay out like how does it work in legal scholarship? What's distinctive about legal scholarship? And then what are some of those problems to which this system of norms that you're proposing are, are uh, responsive or is responsive. Yeah, sure. I can speak to that. So um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what your um, audience knows, but I'll just start from the basics, which is all academics do scholarship. It's part of our mission. And uh, the main way in which we get that scholarship out into the world is through publication in books or scholarly journals or other forums. And uh, for for law professors, um, the, the main vehicle is books or law journals, and a major part of the law journal world are student-edited, student-run uh, journals that are sort of general interest, uh, non-subject-specific journals that are housed at the various law schools. And um, the coin of the realm these days, and, and ha- that has been for some time, is to, is to publish in a student-edited general interest law review. Now, the the way that contrasts with uh, scholarly production in many other fields, uh, indeed, it might be most other fields, uh, uh, in those other fields, uh, there are journals, uh, but they're typically uh, edited by or, or, or items are selected for publication in them by editorial boards of one's peers in that field. Uh, so, um, if it's uh, a psychology, for example, or, or even more specifically, a, a social psychology, uh, you, you might uh, want to publish in the Journal of uh, Personality, uh, Journal of Social and Personality Psychology, uh, or some similar journal like that. Uh, and you would submit your piece to that journal. Uh, you'd be submitting it to only one at a time. Uh, and the people who run that journal, your peers, would decide whether or not to publish it. They might, in the interim, uh, say to you, we would be willing to publish it if you made these particular uh, uh, additions or subtractions and explored these particular ideas. Then we'd need to take a look at it again and make a decision. Um, but but this notion, this phrase, peer review, uh, which people m- may have heard, uh, is a way to sort of uh, invoke that that somewhat different approach. Yeah. And let me just step in like and this was like journals solve a particular kind of problem. I mean, the academy is an information generating mechanism, right? It is a mechanism giving people jobs and time in those jobs to produce new forms of knowledge. And then how do you communicate to that that new knowledge to people around the world? Um, especially before the internet, right? When, when most journals got started, like, so you, you send your, uh, your new knowledge to a central source um, they send it out to other people who might know something about it to figure out whether it's any good. And then they will gather kind of the best new knowledge into one volume to which they will send to people who would be interested in such things, including right. libraries and other scholars. And they're topic specific journals. And I suppose at, 
if we think about the history of general law reviews, we might say, ah, you know, they were started at a time when, when law as a topic heading is, would be granular enough to say legal scholarship is like scholarship in psychology or biology or physics or mathematics or whatever. Um, now, I think the legal academy has developed enough uh, depth in enough different ways of doing and thinking about law that uh, law as a general heading for a journal sounds awfully unspecific, sounds awfully untopical. And one other piece of data here before, and this is this particular piece of data is, is not relevant um, particularly to Scott's topic here, but you know, um, publication in journals is not how any scientists these days really find out, uh, including uh, legal scholars, find out about new information, right? Because every discipline has an online archive where papers are published kind of as soon as they're ready. Um, in the sciences, it's archive um, and various vari- variations of that. And in law, it's SSRN or now SOC archive or law archive, right? Or right. some places to do that. So journals are facing this kind of existential question about like, what is their purpose? What can they do? What value do they add? Which I think does kind of layer on top of the issue here, which is what is the right model, given that professors send their papers that they want to publish out to basically, you know, to a whole bunch of journals at one time. This is in law. In law. Not in virtually any Not in virtually anything else. And then they review it. And and so maybe that new fact has something to do with this. But that's not strictly related to your topic. I'll be interested maybe later in the conversation, Scott, to hear what what you think about that and whether that that new fact impacts these norms. Um, so I don't know if you want to talk about anything that we discussed here in the framing of it, if we've gotten it right or if you perceive it slightly differently or if you just want to launch right into what you think the problems are in law and then what you're, you know, how you thought of these particular norms to address them. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you've got it pretty much right. Um, there are some pros and cons to both models, the sort of the peer review model and the, and the non-peer review model, the student-run model. And that debate has waged for a long time um, with people coming out on both sides. Um, some general dissatisfaction with uh, the way the student run model is currently run in its submissions process. And that's where Jacob and I sort of try to focus our efforts. We, we acknowledge the debate about the two models and we um, try not to take a strong position between them. Instead, we accept the student-run model for what it is, and we try to make it better. Yeah, you're really sort of taking as a starting point, and I think this is a virtue of 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 the project as as you guys have framed it. You're taking as a starting point, kind of um, roughly speaking, the current status quo. Uh, you could take a very different perspective and say, okay, the real goal should be getting legal uh, academic. A scholarly publication to follow as closely as possible the peer review frame from other disciplines. And you would do a whole different set of things to try to make that happen. Um, you point out at one point, I think in the paper, that that there's there, there are reasons to be skeptical that that could actually be accomplished um, because of the path-dependent things that have already occurred and how many institutions are involved and what it would look like to try to bring that about. Um, but you say, look, let's just start where we are and then how could we improve it? How could we make it better? Um, so, so I guess that also takes as given that the notion that there, it, there are ways to make, there's a better to be had. We're not already at the place where it's fine. Right. And a lot of the criticisms of the current model that don't try to distinguish 
between sort of the peer review paradigm and the student edited paradigm really do focus on the communications and the treatment of the two main actors in the journal submission process, which are the law professors who are submitting their writings, and the students on the other end, on the journal side, who are trying to decide whether or not to accept a piece for publication. And that's where Jacob and I really try to focus our efforts and say, some the, the development of some norms here might be really useful and valuable and make the process better even within the confines of the accepted um, student-edited establishment. And is your approach when, you, when you're coming up with these, I mean, uh, like, you know, some of the bad behavior in the law review submission process is like legion among law professors and students. So a lot of people know these things. But I, I'm just curious, from your point of view, did you perceive that there was kind of a, an ethical problem, that there were ethical problems that you wanted to address or that the system wasn't like functionally wasn't working well. I'm kind of trying to distinguish between like a like a moral theory that that led to these suggestions, which we'll get to in a moment, or whether this was more of a an efficiency based um, concern that you had with the system, or both, or, or exactly how you perceive the problem. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and and we try to avoid making these come off as some kind of an ethical code. Um, where that, that word has a real loaded meaning, especially for lawyers, um, and so. What we're instead we're doing is sort of making best practices here. Um, that there are some things that are kind of seem wrong about the different treatments that might occur. Like if um, a professor berates a law student, um, or if law students um, don't treat the writing with the respect that it might deserve. Um, so some some conduct that just is unprofessional uh, rather than unethical, uh, mm-hmm. and then. There are some costs that are imposed by each party's conduct, and um, so we are motivated by efficiency goals as well here. So, if I want to, if I have a new piece and I want to send it out, I can I can click the little buttons in one of the services to do this to send it to 150 or 200 journals at one time. I, that may not be strategically wise for me. It may be. It depends on what my strategy is, I guess. And uh, that will kind of kick off at least a little bit of work. Um, Hopefully, hopefully there will be at least the reading of like the introduction, um, maybe just the cover letter, maybe just the resume. I don't know. This is part of what you address in the, in the piece. But um, a little bit of reading by 150 to 200 law students, usually second year law students, spring semester, second year law students. Um, and and that imposes some, some costs on them. Um, and I guess it's at that stage, like wh- what should the... What kind of ethical? I, I know you want to. I know you don't want to talk about ethics in particular, but but clearly there is some kind of bad behavior that can occur even at that stage in the in the way that I send these. And I'm thinking particularly like one example. I send it to journals that I know that if I get an offer from, I won't accept, and I'm only sending it to those journals in hopes of getting an acceptance that I can use to leverage uh, um, uh, to leverage at other um, journals where I would want to accept the pieces through expedited review. You know, to get them to read it. Um, uh, and I take it you consider that like bad behavior, right? Yeah, and, and maybe maybe it's worth just setting out exactly what the process is yeah. for your for your audience because it is so odd in academic circles to have something like this. And for those of your listeners who aren't academics, they may not uh, fully understand exactly the mechanism. So let me just briefly say that when law professors want to submit a paper to law journals, student-edited law journals – they submit the paper to a number of them at the same time. And 
there are five or six, sometimes more law journals at pretty much all 200 or so law schools that are around the country. And, um, and so there are a lot of law journals and they're all staffed by students. And as a result of multiple submissions, the law students receive at each journal will receive hundreds, often thousands of submissions every year for maybe a two dozen slots uh, for their journal for the year. And they have to sift through all of those and figure out which articles they want to accept for publication. And then they make an offer of publication to the author. And the author can then accept or reject that offer uh, from the journal. And sometimes what happens is because there are multiple submissions, the author has received an offer from one journal but would prefer to place the article in a different journal, which is still considering the piece. And so the author will then do what's called an expedited request with the um, other journal and basically say to the other journal, hey, I have this offer from journal X. Um, And the offer comes with a particular deadline. Can you expedite your consideration of my submission and make a decision on it by that deadline? Um, and then Journal Y will then decide whether or not it wants to do that and, and has the information to know when the uh, paper might not, no longer be on the market. And so as you can imagine, this generates some costs. It means that student editors are reviewing pieces and making offers on pieces that will not be accepted. Um, and so they are doing a lot of reviewing that, uh, that may not ultimately result in any kind of publication in their particular journal. So I do think that there are, um, because it is a market and because there are strategies that both journals and authors have tended to try to employ to maximize their chances at the best papers or the best journals, Um, that those strategies um, generate transaction costs and encourage behavior that is, uh, that borders on unprofessional. And uh, those are the kinds of behaviors that we're trying to identify and surface in this piece and then propose some ways to sort of cabin those behaviors while still giving authors and journals some flexibility to make the most of their market strategies. Uh, One that you just identified is um, an author who submits to a journal without any intention of ever publishing with that journal, but instead submits with the intention of trying to get an offer from that journal so that the author can then use that offer as an expedited uh, basis to leverage offers at higher ranked journals. And we deal with that in our model code too. Now, one reason why I think um, that b- people might engage in that behavior that, that you two were just describing um, it is that given the way that the electronic platforms for making these submissions have developed, and I think we, we it really does shed a lot of light on how the world has come to look the way that it has when you look at the features that are offered on these platforms um, uh, to facilitate all the behaviors that you were just describing. Um, one reason why a person might what, why it might occur to a person to submit to a journal that they really would not accept an offer from uh, if it were the only offer they had is because they know that there are hundreds or thousands of 
of manuscripts flooding the inboxes of all these journals at these particular points in time. And that's the other fact that I think it's helpful for people to know. So, oh, yeah, the so windows, yeah. these submissions are not spread out evenly across the year. They happen in these two clumps, one of which seems to be much bigger than the other now, the, the sort of February-March clump uh, and the August-September clump, that the latter being the smaller of the two. Um, uh, some people contend it doesn't exist at all anymore, really. Um, but uh, so it might be that it's a single clump. And so in that context where, where as you say, there, there are about two dozen spots in any given journal – and in a very short window of time, everyone is jockeying to get their most preferred match uh, between article and publication spot. Um, you, it might occur to uh, an author, hey, I, I need some more leverage here to get paid more attention. And the way to do that is to get an expedite request opportunity uh, that I can use, that meaning an offer from someone that I can use to try to say, hey, pay more attention to me to get my article to float up in people's consideration. Um, and um, given, as you were saying, the, the fact that this this means that there would be uh, students at Law Review's reading publications to make offers uh, that won't ultimately be accepted, um, to... to Add to that notion the idea that the the author does wouldn't even accept the offer if it were made right um, makes it sound particularly inane if if not uh, if not outright depraved uh, for an author to behave in that way. Well, it's certainly using the students as means. Uh, at yes, at the very least, <laughs> um, and and so your 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 model code of conduct says don't do that. Right. This is one of the principles that we yeah. would commit to is the idea that you should an author should not submit a piece to any journal from which it would not accept the offer uh, if, if it were ultimately the offer that they had. That right. seems like a really important principle about how, how we want to conduct ourselves with one another as law professors and law students to to say this is, you know, uh, ultimately a scholarly enterprise and not a war of all against all. Um, in some sort of Hobbesian nightmare. Right. This is one of the more controversial proposals. Um, it, it may not seem that way when, as we're talking about it, um, but the idea is basically that if an author chooses to submit to a particular journal, that submission should come with a good faith um, representation, I implicit uh, in the submission, that the submission is made... Um, with the understanding that uh, the author would be willing to accept an offer of publication from that journal. Um, wait, 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 Scott, did you say controversial? Well, it, I mean, have you yes. gotten feed? Have you gotten pushback on? Uh, are, are there people who say that, that it's okay to submit? I mean, I, I'm, I'm literally, I don't know. I mean, I haven't. I don't know if you've gotten pushback or not on that. Yeah. So, um, in in one on one conversations with um, other law professors and. In um, viewing some of the many blogs, uh, posts that are about the submission right, right. windows, uh, where, there, where there are a lot of comments in those uh, blog posts about the submission process, um, it's not uncommon at all. And in fact, uh, in, in fact, there, there are those who subscribe to the uh, belief and defend it that it is perfectly acceptable to submit for the purposes solely for purposes of getting 
leverage. And uh, even though there may be no intention ever of accepting such an offer. And the justification for that is that sometimes it's hard to get noticed. And we're talking about people's careers um, and uh, the students understand that uh, they're going to make offers that aren't going to be accepted anyway. So it's more important to give uh, professors the opportunities that come with an expedited request than um, for students to uh, have a more reasonable belief that they have a that they are um, reviewing an article that that may. Um, that may ultimately accept a publication offer. And there are people that I've spoken with who are very adamant that uh, this is not only um, appropriate, but necessary for some authors um, to go through this process because they don't think that they would, their, that their pieces would get the right reception in the market without that kind of a signal. Yeah, you know, this is, it's really hard to talk about because because um, I'm not sympathetic with with the current system, um, you know, all cards on the table. I, I, I think I would prefer a system where all professors just publish in a home journal and there are other signifiers of, of quality. And uh, I think there are lots of benefits to a system like that. And it's something I've come to over a while. And, but and it's given funny, the, yeah. in their origin, they actually, I think the origin story of, of law reviews is largely that story. Uh, That's that correct. They, they were started by uh, institutions as a way to give their own faculty members venues in which to publish. Right. So it, that would be an interesting return to origin. It makes a ton of sense. You publish in those, and then, and then other people could like collect things that they find interesting, put them together electronically, and you could have like, you know, like SSRN sends out those. Uh, anyway, I don't want to get too far into that because I think, it, you know, given that like we're not likely to, as, as you say about the uh, peer review alternative, we're probably not likely to, to entertain that, what I think of as a first best solution um, any, anytime soon. Um, like, how do we think about what I think of, well, I shouldn't presume and, and that it, you think of this as a second best system, Scott, but I certainly think of it as a second, second Another best. reason it's hard to talk about is the, the, um, <laughs> the number of words I am choking back right now to, <laughs> to uh, denounce the profoundly shabby, uh, morally, utterly morally lost <laughs> um, quality to the argument that, well, that, that Scott has I heard know. other people yeah. make. Um, is is diff- me, it makes me, it hard to talk about. I know. Let me push back on uh, on that just a little bit. And Scott, I don't know if you've heard this kind of defense before. Like, so what I heard the defense being is like it's necessary for certain people's careers, which, which, which doesn't give any credence to or um, the, the the kind of the t- the value of the time of the students or of you know how what their experience of of giving an offer only to have it. Pull, you know, I don't know what you know. But anyway, that could be bad, right? But but maybe you could push back and say that it's kind of like. Um, you know, what are the ethics of going to test drive cars that you have no intention of buying? Like, I don't even test drive cars I do buy. So this is a terrible analogy for me, right? <laughs> but like, uh, you know, um, and I don't buy any cars really. But like, you know, or shopping in a place where you don't expect to buy anything, you know, from the point of view of the purveyor of goods, like a reasonable purveyor of goods might well want someone who has no intention of buying anything to come and look at things because the act of looking things over might change their mind. And so right. at the moment of submission, although I don't intend to uh, place in journal give, A. It also might give them things to talk about with their friends to say, hey, you should go to that store. Hey, you might enjoy driving that car. Right. I mean, there are all sorts of ripple effects in an economy of, of reputation that uh, having that kind of encounter Right. which is is actually fairly minimal and the institution that you're going to is sort of set up 
to provide that kind of encounter, uh, you can tell from that signal that they actually want you to do that. So, it's, so if it's um, a plausible story, as you say, that's a reason to think. You know, it's a plausible story that some journal editors might say, "Hey, even if you don't, even even if you think you don't want to publish with us, go uh, and send it our way." You know, I, be, I was trying to talk about the way in which it's obviously not comparable, but okay. Oh, you're, you're saying maybe there's a journal that thinks that way too. If there is one, like how much of the so how much would our ethical calculation or, or ethical evaluation of the act of sending to a journal that you do not think at the time that you send it that you would publish with if you, if, if you were made an offer. How much should that evaluation turn on, you know, empirically, you know, po- you know, polling journals to find out, hey, do you, is it okay if we do? And, and I guess part of your proposal, Scott, like a lot of these um, rules are like waivable if there's clear information from both sides. Mm. So maybe a journal could say, hey, you know, even if you don't think you want to publish us, publish with us, send it our way. Or maybe a journal should affirmatively signal only only uh, submit an art- article to us if you will accept an offer of publication. Um, I guess a d- there's a role for default rules here, and maybe the default rule should be what we think the kind of the ethical average is. I don't know. H- how would you think about this, Scott? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Joe that the analogy is um, not a good one, just because I can't think of any kind of value to the journal for having authors submit pieces that, that the journal knows will um, the authors will not accept and the authors know they will not accept. It's just, um, it's not like driving a car where there can be word of mouth, um, that could enhance future sales or that, you know, maybe the journal, the, the offer could change an author's mind. Um, the decision to accept an offer is going to be based on information that is all known ex ante before the submission. Um, so it's, it's really hard to it's it's really hard to envision a world in which the costs uh, to the journal would be worth it to the journal um, to have submissions be uh, be made with no intention of accepting an offer. So, um, for so for example, if you had, uh, I mean, if we imagine a situation where um, that part of the software where people make these submissions gave you the option of indicating on your submission that you definitely would not accept an offer from this journal if it were made, uh, and that you can signal that up front, we all know the students wouldn't read those papers. Right. So there's a sense in, unlike the car dealership, where we might say, look, I'm actually not going to buy a car. I'm just coming to look and I'd love to take a test drive. They'd be like, absolutely, we love it. Come on down. Right. Well, I, I actually think that intuition about the car dealer would be correct. Well, I, I just think the model of authorial uh, submission intention here is maybe a little bit too binary. Um, I, you know, so, so I'm just trying to push back because I personally would never submit to a place where I wouldn't accept an offer if it were my best offer, right? So, but, so Scott, why did you include this as a in, in your in your rule three on submissions? Why did you guys include this as a principle? And you've said that you know, and I've seen some of those same blog comments and blah blah blah. But and you've gotten some pushback. So why include it? Why do you think it's an important principle? Because I think it's a there's a counter argument out there, a counter narrative that needs to be combated. Um, it's um, I, I, I do believe that there are people who submit to journals with no intention of accepting their offer. I agree, um, but but why is that not a thing we should simply accept in much the same way that we? Because you you guys have made 
choices, and I think important choices, of things that you take as a given and then things you think could be better. So, so for example, I mean, the, why accept that it's okay to send to 100 journals simultaneously when you know that you'll only publish in one and that you have a rank ordering without disclosing a rank ordering to the journals? In other words, you do that, and we put work on the students by doing that. Like you multiply, you know, you have, you know, 100 times the readership you would have in a single submit um, uh, uh, market. That's okay, but it's not okay to submit to a journal um, that you right. know, you, that, at least that you think you would not accept an offer from. I think right. is that the question, Joe? I mean, yeah. yeah, because I think this this code as written does such a great job finding. This is sort of like the Justice O'Connor model code. It's like she found just the right place where it's yeah. right in the middle. It's right down the middle of what of what people would articulate as a good way to kind of balance a set of competing concerns. It, it, it's it's more than the prohibition of the it it's more than the prohibition of worst practices but it's also quite not quite maybe best practices because like what does best practice mean in the system when there is you know and there are arguments to be made for example as you were just suggesting about like why have multiple submissions at all so so you, you raise a good point i think the answer is that we've tried to focus on conduct rather than structures mm. uh, rather than platforms we accept the multiple submission platform. It is it is perfectly plausible for an author to to tell journals, you know, I'm submitting only to ten journals, and you're one of them. And it's perfectly acceptable for journals to say, we're only going to accept uh, papers if you are only submitting to us and less than twelve others, or something like that. Um, we we have taken the position in this that we're going to focus on. The conduct, the relationship between the journal and the author submitter um, and focus on the professionalism and honesty and integrity of, of those interactions rather than the structures of the submission process. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and uh, be, be, well, it, it makes absolute sense given that what you're trying to do is improve the system that we have, right? And um, the kind of this... I'm I'm less convinced that that you can totally separate like a certain conception of like um, uh, academic virtue ethics from structure. I think those two go together. The structure that we have in some ways makes us worse people, right? But given that the overall structure is going to stay the same, how can we behave in a way that is, you know, that is best uh, given those constraints? And, And I think you've admirably focused on some of like I said, the prevention of at least worst practices or or, or bad practices. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if you see it the same way, and if and if so, or even if not, like what are some other areas? Um, what are some other um, kinds of conduct? If you had to summarize, like maybe two or three of the most important. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I'll just start with the, the the principles that we think should guide the the relationship between submitters and journals are honesty, professionalism, and transparency. And those are, those can be fuzzy words and, uh, and the devil can be in the details of how they're applied. And so we do try to um, offer some illustrations about how they should be applied in the various stages of the submission process. And I think the most controversial ones that, that we have put out are, the good faith representation by the author that the author would be willing to accept an offer from the journal under some set of circumstances. Um, We also have a prohibition on the author submitting to the author's homeschool journals. 
um, unless the author commits to accepting an offer from that journal if one is made. So that's um, a sort of a, there is, I think, a wide uh, acceptance that an author can submit to a homeschool journal. And, um, and I think that raises some challenges given the special relationship that the author has um, to the students that the author is presumably uh, teaching at that journal. So, and, and some of those very students that very semester, perhaps. Right, exactly. Some of those students that very semester or the most recent semester. I mean, if I taught my students civil procedure, they, take, they would take me in their first semester. And then some of them will be on the Hastings Law Journal the next year. And, um, you know, if, if they enjoyed having me as a professor or, and, and perhaps think highly of me, then I might have a leg up on um, getting an article placed with Hastings Law Journal the following year. Um, and there are some journals that, in fact, have institutionalized that preference by saying, we're just going to give all of the homeschool authors a final vote um, on their article just because they're homeschool authors. And, and just to be clear about that advantage, I mean, normally at most, at most schools, um, as I understand it, uh, pieces are read probably just by one or maybe two um, articles editors. And then if they like it, maybe it'll go to another round of another person reading it. But, uh, but there are one or two rounds before the article is uh, circulated to the entire article selection board, at which point there would be a vote by that board. And, and skipping that process and going to the whole board is, well, like with many institutions, right? <laughs> Agenda control is just about everything. And so you dramatically, I think, increase your odds by going right. to the full board. Right, Christian, that's a good point is, um, you know, different, different uh, journals have different selection processes, but there is sort of a uniform norm that there's a, an initial screen by one, maybe two articles editors, then there's at least one other final, uh, one other step, which is a final vote uh, of more than those. It might be a, a subset of the journal membership, usually a selection committee. Um, and then some journals even have other steps. Uh, some journals have a full board vote. Right. Um, and some journals also go through sort of an informal peer review process where they would have um, another academic read the article and, and give the journal some guidance about uh, its merit. Uh, and then uh, and then there's an offer made. So it, it's true that different journals do have different processes, but you're right that the, the basic norm is that there's at least one screening, low-level screening process, and then one a committee-sized vote to extend an offer. Well, let me just say, too, there's one other kind of home field advantage that you didn't touch on. I mean, it's not just that the students might like you and have positive feelings for you, and that can't help but kind of rub off in a non-blind review. Um, but also, like, you know, you're a scholar, right? And you, your, your student's conception of what is an interesting problem probably comes a little bit from how you present the material, right? And even in a 1L class, right, You, as a, as a teacher, a scholar, the way you present that material, like I said, reflects, you know, some problems you see in the doctrine, what you think of as important. And so the student's own conception of what might be an important civil procedure question is going to be shaped, at least to some extent, by those that you cue as a professor as as important. And, you know, if you're a con law prof, uh, you you might highlight particular areas that are of interest to you. And, and many professors will even introduce a little bit of their own theories, right, about how to solve these problems. And so there's kind of a lot of like substantive cueing that occurs um, 
kind of, you know, in the teaching process that creates a home field advantage too. I've, I've never seen any studies of this or right. how, you know, I don't know how you would study it, but it seems to me yeah, that it, can't help. But Yeah, it stands to reason that, that a, a an editorial board of Dodsonians, like who will have a better <laughs> chance with them than Dodson, right? I mean, because right. they're Dodsonians now um, to some degree. And I think- Are I think all your students Dodsonians, Scott? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um and it, it's interesting that you so, – so, so, so far we've got the um, don't submit if you wouldn't accept an offer uh, were it the only one you have. Which is um, kind of like an – that seems to me tied to the honesty virtue that um, – of, of honesty, professionalism, and um, oh, that's transparency. Funny. I thought of it more as a professionalism, which I'm interpreting as a sort of don't use people uh, – don't, don't go to the wall uh, uh, in the degree to which you treat people as, as – um, means rather than ends So don't be a very bad Kantian. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's okay to um, be anti-Kantian, but not like, not like a really bad anti-Kantian. Yeah. Yeah. But the other one, the, the um, don't submit to your home school journal, uh, don't submit to your own journal if, if, you, uh, if you won't accept the offer. So you're, you're basically swearing off the use of that offer as an expedite vehicle, right? Um, right. Both of these are ways to constrain expedition, expedite requests. Yeah. Right. But the latter sounds like professionalism, the first like honesty to me, but we could okay. quibble about that. Um, so so you, you have another, there's another kind of constraint principle relating to expedites uh, in terms of um, the offer. So, so the way you guys have set it up, if I've got it right, um, a journal that in response to a request for expedited review uh extends an offer of publication on in your framework that journal that second journal should use the very same deadline as the initial journals offer yeah this was interesting um and i and i'm i'm dying to hear you talk about how you guys sort of conceptualize that and how you thought about that how that should operate absent transparency about some other rule i think right right so this is the third sort of major controversial innovation that we're in uh, that we're putting in here oh did i come Um, up with it the third one yeah oh cool 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 cool. (laughs) and um and we and jacob and i really talked about this one um it since all of the rules are defeasible by clear um uh, you know and transparent communications um journals and authors can agree to something different that would be fine but 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 we did think that the expedite process is so rife with gamesmanship that it would be um, better on for an efficiency from an efficiency standpoint to constrain how expedites were used are used. And so let me just give a little bit of background. Um, sometimes journals have a typical deadline that they will give and as part of the condition of their offer. And let's just say it's five days. Um, and so if uh, an author gets an offer from journal A um, with a deadline on day one, um, then uh, the author might try to get an intervening offer that comes within five days that would extend the paper's marketability into day four. And then maybe a third offer between day one and day four that would extend it even further, perhaps to day nine. And because the deadline continues to be extended from day one to day four to day nine, that deadline has to be recommunicated to all the journals considering the paper. Um, and it leads to 
um, some confusion uh, with all these various communications and changing deadlines. Uh, it really disrupts the way the reviewing journals structure their review process. And it strikes me that that's all kind of unnecessary, um, that instead all you really need is that first deadline. And as long as journals are able to make a decision by that deadline, then you shouldn't need any kind of extension. The author should be able to know whether um, he or she would prefer journal X or journal Y and doesn't need a lot more time to consider between the two. So we have put in here a best practice that is that an offer made off of an expedite request should come with the same deadline that the initial offer came with. That way there's no movement of deadlines. And I'll also say that some journals will give an, an intervening offer that shortens the deadline. So if the first offer comes with deadline at day five, Journal Y could come in, make an offer on day one, and say, our deadline is now day two. And that has prejudiced all of the other journals that were operating under the assumption that the deadline was day five. Or one hour from now. Exactly. There are some extremely short deadlines. Um, right. I believe California Law Review said that offers made off an expedite are made on the phone, and um, an, an, an answer is demanded on the phone at that time. Oh, you, Which is you, a just, real you could just leave the line open. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a real indication of, of um, the, the, as you said, the, the way in which it's become rife with gamesmanship um, that, uh, now, of course, well, but, the, the, the kind of empty-souled, uh, uh, <sighs> utterly depraved careerist who oh. objects to the idea that um, you, you, sh you shouldn't uh, submit to journals uh, from which you would not ultimately accept an offer, they, of course, wouldn't like this either, right? This, this way of using the unitary deadline to prevent the ultimate daisy-chaining of umpty-ump uh, expedite requests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, you know but, they're sort but, of yes. unreachable, but the but the it is funny mm. that we're trying to pragmatically like you know the expedite process is like it's there and it and it has some value or there's some reality that we know we can't eliminate, but we also need to find ways to kind of rein it in so it doesn't generate so many extra costs. Yeah, but of let, confusion let, and all that stuff. So I I think the this one is harder than the um than submitting with no with an absolute conviction that you would not accept an offer. I think that's an easier question. Um, yeah. I think it's somewhat tougher if your conviction is not absolute, but let's, you know, leave that one aside. Um, if, um, and here's a typical story, right? So I think the, the, the way that a lot of people think of this, you have a rank order, a, a ranked ordered preference among journals from one to a hundred, which maybe comes from some journal ranking thing or some combination of that in U.S. news or something. But so, suppose that the, uh, the submitter has in his or her head a rank ordering of journals and gets an offer from... Uh, the, they, the problem is we all have the same rank order. That's that's one of the challenges here. Yeah, they're, they're but, pretty well correlated. I mean, they can differ a little bit, but um, but yeah, and and it, you know maybe some specialty journals are more important to you depending on your line of work and stuff. But basically, true. it's the same rank ordering, and, yeah. and and for our purposes, you could just think of it as U.S. News. It departs from that a little bit. But you can sure. think of it that way. So, first so, so suppose you submit to hundred journals and you get an offer from the ninety-first rank journal. Um, your challenge, of course, right, is because each journal gets between two and 3,000, maybe more submissions, it just depends. Um, your, your, your challenge, um, especially if you're not well-known, is to get your piece read, 
right? It's just to get read at all. And, um, and so what you want to do is to give information to higher ranked journals that you would prefer that will cause them to read the article and make a decision. And so you're thinking to yourself, to, to which journals do I tell about this 91st ranked journals offer that will prompt them to read it? Is this going to prompt the number two ranked journal in the nation to read it, um, given that they have a bunch of other expedites from higher ranked journals? You know, and, and so basically this is, we have a system not only where the, the professors are using the students as means with the students' knowledge that they're being used in that way, um, but the higher ranked journals are now using the lower ranked journals as means to kind of figure out which, which articles to read first. Correct. Um, because it, there's no way to avoid it. You just can't read the whole stack And they at one probably time. have the highest number of submissions. The highest ranked journals probably think so. have the highest number, which means they are most desperate among all the students, they're the ones most desperate for proxies of quality and other signals. Right. So they might come to rely very heavily on, you know, uh, you can even imagine them adopting a policy something like, look, we don't read things that are not the subject of an expedite request. Or we read from the stack randomly, but we divide our time between expedites and this in a particular way in order right. to, like, because you just have to have a system for getting things off the stack and it can be first in, first out. But even that, like, there's some pieces you will never get to right. um, because they came in a little bit later and, and, the, and you know, this is another part of the proposal, but your, your submission windows aren't always entirely clear. So the, uh, some pretty standard advice is if you get the rank from the 91st ranked journal, maybe you expedite to journals ranked 85 to 60 or something like that in it, or something where, where you're, 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 you're letting the journals know about that deadline, which are most likely to be motivated to act because of the offer that you have. And, and that is uh, the, the salience of that offer from the 91st ranked uh, journal kind of dwindles as you go up the rankings. At least that's the model that a lot of people have in their heads. That's advice that I've gotten from people before, haven't sure. always followed it, but like that's some advice that goes around. And so a pretty typical pattern is you submit to those journals, maybe you get an offer and they open a new window for you. And then you kind of go up the chain in that way. Right. And so the question is... Um, and I see a lot that's wrong with that. Joe, you've written a whole article about the immorality of expedited review. All of them. Um, <laughs> Not but, just these. But if we hold the system constant, then the question is, you know, conditional on holding the rest of the system constant and everybody knowing that the model I just described is kind of how things work. What's wrong with it? Yeah. And um, I guess I'd challenge that on a couple of grounds. One is that we don't have good data about what journals really are doing, if they are using, uh, systemically using lower ranked journals as their initial screeners. And there is some anecdotal evidence of that, but there's also anecdotal evidence that the top ranked, many top ranked journals will consider any expedite, no matter where it's coming from, as an expedite. Um, and they will treat them essentially equally. At least that's the anecdotal evidence that some formal journal editors have themselves volunteered uh, in, in public spheres. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is hard to know what the conventional, whether the conventional wisdom or the conventional advice that's given is really accurate or not. Um, so I might push back a little bit on the data there. Um, and then I'd also suggest that this is somewhat of a compromise solution. And the compromise is that not it does prevent authors from essentially doing a tiered expedited ladder um, to move up, but it also prevents intermediate range journals from hamstringing authors with exploding offers to prevent them from doing that. Right. 
So if you have a market that is based on expedite ladders, then the journal side is going to exploit that market too by just making exploding offers. If I were if I were the journal, if I were a journal ranked in say the 50 range, and I knew that I was ranked in the 50 range, then if I got an offer, if I got a submission with an expedited uh, review request from an, a journal ranked uh, say 80, then uh, I might uh, make sure I gave a really short time frame uh, because I'm likely to be accepted over the journal ranked 80, and I don't want to give journal ranked number 30 the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, so this sort of consistent deadline um, constrains that kind of market gamesmanship as well. So why wouldn't this happen? So, I, I, well, first of all, I assume that you would have no problem with, you know, um, if, if I had the 91st ranked journal give me an offer and I got um, midweek an offer from the 50th ranked journal, there's no problem with, uh, and in fact, I have an obligation under another one of your practices, if, if I accepted it, to uh, to reject, to immediately, you know, um, uh, release the 91st ranked journal and, and, um, and now uh, they're out of the picture, and and you would have no problem with my communicating with the high, the higher rank journals that hey, I now have an offer in hand from the fiftieth rank journal, um, but the deadline wouldn't change, right? Right. And so so what if if this were to happen, and suppose there were, I don't know, a, a five day window. What why wouldn't the suppose I'm a journal in the range of seventy to ninety, um, and I have that ninety first ranked offer. The author does. Um, why wouldn't one of those journals wait until the very last minute of that window to come in with an offer, right? Because it, it, you know they know that they're going to be passed over by higher ranked journals if uh, in in the interim, if yeah, they, they come could. in with an offer in the interim. Yeah, they could, and, and I and I and I imagine that this kind of a rule would kind of incentivize late responses, late offers within that within that window, but. Um, I don't really see too much of a problem with that as uh, because the information should all already be available to the author to be able to make a, a relatively quick decision based on the offers received, even if they're received late in the window. So uh, the way I see this working then is it would be, I think if you did this, you would have these offers come in last minute. That would be my guess. And and so the signal that you would send to the most highly ranked journals on your list or the most highly ranked that you think are plausible would probably be from the lowest ranked journal that made you an offer, right? Because you wouldn't have time really to communicate that information in a, in a reasonable way to the higher ranked journals because all those, uh, all of the, the intermediate offers would come in at the last minute. And so in, in a way, your expedite would send a signal about your confidence in your article, um, uh, your confidence in your position because, you know, people at, at maybe very fancy places don't submit to the 91st ranked journal um, as often. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm making some, I'm obviously speculating here and uh, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about it. No, no, it's, I think you make a good point. It's hard to be able to predict how people will try to play the game under different rules, but I think your assumption is probably a good one that, um, that understanding that your first offer will be the primary signal that um, of the of the quality of the expedite to the extent that people use that as a proxy, then um, it may incentivize authors to be more strategic or more limiting about how many journals they initially submit to. Um, you may decide that if you want to go for a very high ranked journal, that you're not going to submit to the 90th ranked journal. You're only going to submit to the top 30, 
And, um, and if you strike out, then you could submit to the next 30 in the next submission cycle. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. I don't know. It's hard to know exactly how authors will react and journals will react to these kinds of new rules. But I do think that's plausible. You know, one, um, in terms of uh, this code that you've proposed and, and the existing institutional structures and, and established practices, um, I think the time compression of the submission windows is driving a bunch of the dysfunction. Yeah. And so if, if we could find a way to get to a, a different equilibrium where the, the process of submitting manuscripts to journals and getting offers or not and, and could sort of be spread out more evenly across the calendar year, I think that would be a, a highly salutary thing. Um, but, but sticking back within the frame that exists now and, and your suggestions for how we might improve it, one thing we haven't talked much about as, as you've been laying out your, the, the three top things is, um, and something I'm very intrigued by, is this, the, you're, you're referencing the value of transparency. And so I've been thinking a lot about, um, and you said early in the conversation something that is very intriguing, the notion that, of course, you know, an author could signal, hey, I'm only submitting to the following journals. Uh, and it's some smaller number. This is uh, something you guys were just referencing. Um, and, and that journals could also say, hey, we, we will only consider manuscripts from people who have limited themselves to a certain number of journals. What I think is very, very interesting is that, uh, you know, there are two uh, electronic platforms that facilitate a, a lot of this submission behavior right now, um, uh, the, the Espresso platform and the Scholastica platform. And it's interesting to me that neither of them actually provide that functionality. Um, they do provide the functionality for universal expedite requests. Um, they do uh, provide the functionality of submitting to lots of journals at once without any of them knowing how many you've submitted to. Um, and and they when they provide you the platform for doing these expedite requests, it, it seems to function basically on the honor system where they ask you to reveal, as the person making expedite requests to other journals, um, please identify the journal and the deadline. But um, so your honesty principle would stop someone from, from doing that deceptively. Um, but the, the platform itself doesn't prevent you <laughs> from doing it deceptively. And I wonder what you think, Scott, about, like, Let's let's envision a, a, a Scholastica or an Espresso with some slightly different features. Um, and I wanted to try out a, f a few features on you to see if you think they would enhance your transparency goals um, as, as you conceptualize the transparency goals. So I was thinking something along the lines of the following, um, that when you submit as an author to the journals in, in this uh, system, and let's just imagine Scholastica for the moment, um, that uh, Scholastica implements a, a way that, that the author can toggle a switch, and if it's in the yes position, um, all journals will see all journals to which you are submitting the paper. Uh, and journals can similarly toggle that switch on or off, right? Uh, we, and, it will, and authors will be able to see whether the journal has toggled it on or off. Um, the journal will say, yeah, we want to see everyone else you're submitting to or not. Um, and, and 
alternatively, if, if that would make people uncomfortable to have that level of transparency, um, maybe like a heat map that works basically <laughs> like this. The, the more journals you submit to, the cooler <laughs> your temperature gets, like the signal gets weaker, right? So journals could know um, that you're submitting to fewer journals or more journals. And they could focus their efforts on the people who are submitting their papers to, mo- to fewer journals. There'd be a way for you to send that signal um, and just with a simple, like, the, the, the color saturation of a little icon, right? So it doesn't need to be complicated. Um, but it's a way for people to transparently signal to, to one another, hey, I'm really more interested in the journals to which I'm submitting because I'm submitting to fewer of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does that, would that help with transparency? Do you think Scholastica should, should explore something like that? It would help with letterhead bias, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, you know, um, again, we, we have not tried to reform the particular platforms. Um, we've instead focused on the particular conduct. Uh, it, does, it does seem consistent with the value of transparency, which we've tried to inculcate in, in the conduct code. Um, I, don't, I haven't given that particular suggestion the thought that it deserves I do think, though, that it would cause people to think more carefully about which journals they are submitting to and what kind of signal that sell that sends. Um, one of the pathologies of the whole process, though, is this underlying belief that placement is a proxy for merit. <laughs> and I thought um, we weren't touching this, Scott. I thought we- I, know, <laughs> I know, but um, but. I mean, if you accept that, then there might be some other suggestions for how to accentuate that through um, through the signaling function that comes with identifying to others which journals you're submitting to. But um, but I guess that's a whole nother mm-hmm. conversation. Well, I mean, if we didn't have like this is all within our power to solve, because if we didn't ascribe merit based on placement, none of this would matter. And a lot of this would just fix itself, right? So this is sure. like, it's, this is doubly on the professors right. to, to solve because it's re- the, the whole absurdity of the situation arises from the absurd level of, of, uh, of, of stock that we place uh, in placement. Uh, but let me just say this too, Joe, uh, on your specific suggestion. And when I said that this would help letterhead advice, I mean, it would kind of make it worse because kind of the higher ranked school from which you are submitting um, the fewer journals you can submit to with some confidence that you will get an acceptance. My sense is that people at lower rank schools, because the whole discipline is like, you know, crazily rankings obsessed. And I, like, like Scott said, there's a whole other can of worms. I don't want to open it. It makes me sick. I don't want to think about it. Right. But, uh, it, but it is a thing. If, you know, if you're at a high rank school, maybe you can submit to like 20 journals. Um, if you're at a, not at such a high rank school, maybe you need to submit to 80 or so journals. And, uh, and so that would systematically disadvantage right. people at the lower rank schools if... Who would all be cold fish under your scheme. Because right, the more you submit to... Right. Big, so bright, I guess, red, beating hearts. Yeah. I guess they... So the, the, um, that might be one response. Another response might be they would submit to uh, a similar number. They would just be lower rank journals, um, which would create its own set of... Uh, effects and, and possibly objections. I right. totally understand that. But if you, if you that. take that to the limit, then the obvious answer is everyone submits just to their, not just submits, but everyone just publishes in their home journal. Like that's the limit of your suggestion if you try to solve that problem. Yeah, it I could think. be. It could be the limit of it. I was simply, I, uh, one thing I was trying to do was just follow through on the thread that 
um, from from the um, trying to cut down on the just the generation of friction and cost. Right. Right. That if you give a way for people to more reliably signal that they will submit to few, that they are submitting to fewer journals, you just cut down on the total number of expedite requests yeah. and other stuff that's going to be. There's just so much chaff that's <laughs> thrown into the air by by these hundreds of expedite requests that, and then a second expedite request and a third. You know. But one of the great virtues of Scott's piece, right, is it does focus on making better the world that we have. Yes. And as we talk about it more. Correct. Right? And, and I was you, just trying to get, I, know, I was I know, trying I to and you bust that, past the paper a bit. And, and you mentioned that up front too. So I, I, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that, right? That like, if you actually want to improve the world we have sometimes, and in fact, uh, this morning I was at a meeting where I was describing a solution to a serious problem, which is in some ways a second best solution, but like you have to improve the world that we have, right? Um, but what's interesting is the more we get into a conversation like this and we say, but yes, but how do we make this even better? then you immediately run up against structure and trying to change the structure because the whole structure is in some ways rotten. But we can make of it a better structure than what we have, right? Yeah. We can, uh, you know, this is like the... That's and why, I do think it's, yeah. it's worth thinking about what kind, like what are the features that these two companies are providing to users right now, both the professor users yeah. and the student users, and what, function, what, what functionalities might the professors and students actually desire but those companies aren't yet providing them, and and maybe a way to, to, uh, in addition to this code of conduct, a thing that people could be thinking about is, you know, what if there were a serious ask made of these institute of well, these of these providers? There are certainly ways, and and one follow on to this piece. Like, could you, you please add this feature? Yeah, I don't know if you thought about it, Scott, but like some of, some of the things in this code of conduct could be, um, if not like reduced to code. In the, on these sites, at least encouraged by code, right? There, there are certain features they could add that would make it easier to set, say, a singular expedite date, right? That doesn't get right. moved around a lot. And, and I don't know if you've thought about that at all, about ways to uh, work with Scholastica, Scholastica. And is it B-Press that runs Expresso? But yeah. Um, yeah, and there are things that they could do that would, um, that would help adherence to the code or at least like publicize the code or something. There have been, and there there have been a lot of suggestions on how to reform the platforms or how to get the platforms more integrated into, um, you know, sort of best practices. I don't know how those conversations have um, have sort of followed on the the the, con- the initial conversations of what we should do. So I don't really know how receptive Scholastica would be, but. Uh, my own interactions with Scholastica has has seemed to indicate that Scholastica is very interested in the process and uh, making the process most attractive. And they're in a market uh, competition with Expresso and with other um, with other submission platforms too. And so maybe they would be willing to sit down and have an honest conversation about how to reform the system. Cool. Well, I, I, I'm going to ask you like a last thing, and but you can add whatever you want. And because um, I put my cards on the table, I would have the you know, the, it, your piece is edited by your students at your home school. And then, you know, once it's published, like you could pick up, there could be like the Larry Solom Journal of Legal Theory from which like he picks his favorite pieces over the year and publishes them. And there could be other groups which do the same. And so this is kind of secondary market in highlighting pieces. And which the initial way would be, you'd put it on uh, on Social Archive or you'd put it on right. SSRN anyway. So you the, put there anyway. the initial thing would be there. Then your right. home journal would, would do the formal publishing. You would then work these with other, right. Yeah. You, you would work with your own students on making the piece better and polishing it like directly. And that would have, I think a lot of virtues. And then you right. would have the secondary market and kind of signaling among the professoriate, which would be, 
better. And that, yeah, that would solve so many problems, I think. I don't know if we can get there or not. And there are probably problems with this. And I'm just kind of throwing it out there. So I wanted to give you, Scott, a chance to say, like, if, if, if is there a bigger solution that you like in, in, in the best of all worlds that you've thought, you know, this would be a way better system. But like, you know, I, I realize it's not in the spirit of this project, which is to, like I said, to improve the world we have by, um, you know, making the structure work better. But like, would you prefer another structure or do you, are you not ready to say? Well, I, I do think that the under, that you really can't improve the system with these large strides uh, and eliminate a lot of the pathologies and costs of the current system without it starting w- at the professor level and the institutional level of, of eroding the idea that placement is a proxy for merit. And, um, and that should be something that appointments committees, rank and tenure committees, um, all um, the, um, you know, award committees that um, if, if those kinds of proxies are just minimized, right. um, then the whole placement game becomes far less meaningful and less valuable. And, and I think it would solve a lot of these problems. Um, it has to start with, it has to start with us. Um, and I, I think that um, the idea of using placement as a proxy is, is really just kind of a laziness on our part. Uh, hmm. There's no substitute for having, for doing your own read of a case <laughs> right. and, and evaluating its merits on your own and, and seeking input from people in the field. And we, we do peer review all the time. Um, we ought to do it without regard to where the publication is housed. Um, so if we can just get past that or at least begin to marginalize that, I think we'll be on much better footing. You know, yeah, as I you said that, as you said that, I, I have one more thought because um, I was thinking, okay, where would change have to start? What if tomorrow Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and Stanford all announced they would only accept articles or they were only going to publish articles from their own faculty and they would publish basically all the articles from their faculty? Like, I, I think in order to get you know, a suggestion like mine, except it, like it would have to ripple down from those top journals. That's how I'm kind of gaming it out in my head right now. But, um, huh. but so, but I agree. So I, t- I, I, I say that partly to think about how change could happen. And I can see other stories of how change could happen. But whatever those other stories, I think Scott's got it exactly right. Like, you know, the, the power to give a placement power, <laughs> right, is within the people who are using it as a proxy, which are professors, awards committees, and I was actually drawn to the alt- the, the, the very opposite uh, notion that if if every faculty member tomorrow at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, uh, Chicago, Michigan, et cetera, uh, all announced that they would never again uh, publish at any journal ranked higher than 80 in U.S. News. Ooh, um, an inversion. Hmm? An inversion. Yeah. Of, that, yeah. So, so – all you quality, uh, you know, uh, rank of the journals school as a proxy for quality mavens need to go pound sand um, because we we are the faculties of what everyone agrees are great schools and mm-hmm. we're not going to publish in, in the, the top journals anymore. We're, so you can go look for our stuff at these other journals. I, I love that you've hit on one of these law professory turns out kind of like flip the model kind of solutions. <laughs> right, it's like a to- but, but you know, like both a- of us are are fantasizing though, right? In the sense that neither of these things is going to happen at all. Yeah, 
um, which is why, which is, which these, is these are really impoverished the, fantasies, I have to say. <laughs> but it reaffirms the importance of, of what, what Scott and Jacob have done here, right? Yeah. Because, because taking a hard look at the actual world and asking what you could do to make the actual world function a bit better according to some, some values I think we should all be able to get behind, like honesty and transparency, like that's, that's, that's God's work, <laughs> honestly. Wow. Well, that's that's a, or, that's a or as John F. Kennedy once said, that's making God's work our own. Oh wow! I don't think Joe's ever given a higher endorsement, like literally, <laughs> of a, of a paper before. I don't so, often invoke uh, the supreme being. Yeah, Scott and Jacob have gotten high praise indeed. Scott, is there anything else that we haven't said that like I, I, we kept you too long? But I, um, anything else that you you think that we should have gotten to that we didn't, or any message that you want people to have about the paper that we haven't gotten to? Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, give some props to my co-author, Jacob Hirsch. He was the executive articles editor for the Hastings Law Journal. Um, and it was important for me to have someone on the journal side of things to help craft this model code of conduct, uh, because the code does apply to both journals and professors, and because it does try to sort of balance the market that, that both are in. Um, and we worked very closely together, and this is as much his project as it, as it is mine. Um, so I wanted to make sure that uh, that he got his props in this, and and I also wanted to thank uh, both of you, Christian and Joe, for for having me on. Uh, that, that's awesome. I, I actually did not know that Jacob was a law student because I didn't read that footnote carefully enough. Clearly, mm. um, we should have had him on the show too. Um, but I think that's great. I mean, I think there should be more co-authoring with students actually, but that's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and this was really, really great. So um, thanks for writing the paper, and thanks for, thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you, guys. Uh, all right, I guess I'll hit stop. Are we doing pre-roll? I guess. It's well, your show. We, oh, my God. <laughs> if we don't need to do pre-roll, let's not do pre-roll. I think At people... some point, we do, I think it would be fun to have a conversation, a, a, a kind of, you know, Try to imagine the ideal platform for law review submission that was matching professors and students, and what all what are all the features that it would have, and what effect might they have? So this this sounds more like post roll or no roll. <laughs> You're previewing what we're going to talk about with our guest. Well, Scott I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking about a thing we know we didn't talk. That our well, listeners now know we did topic, not get to that. A general topic. The general topic here is the the wacky, crazy at times and perhaps thoroughly unethical world of law review scholarship and how, and how to make it better and how submissions work and a way to take the system we have and make it better. And they've written a, a really interesting paper containing um, some norms of conduct that in fact, uh, a model code that they think would, would improve things. So yeah. we're going to, we're going to talk about that. And, and also, you know, we do go into a little bit about like alternative structures and yep. how things could go better. Um, I, I thought you were going to say at some point we've got to get to something else, and I didn't know if this came out of the mailbag or or Joe's head or where it came from, but uh, but no, huh? It's about the topic. Yeah, I just this is um, this is a the set of problems that beset the the current world of law professor publishing of scholarly work in in uh, journals known as general law reviews. There there are so many problems; they are so complex. Um, they uh, they show such lapses of of um, understanding. They uh, 
and treating I'm, other people yeah. decently. And I, I just so, so I could talk about this for, literally for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and and uh, in some ways, it seems like a small problem compared to the problems that we have this these days with the. Yeah, the but, rubble, this, but, but this is the field we till, so I know, we know, I know it well, know. and that's why it's it's. But, uh, but actually, there's been a lot of interest, like on you know, like shows like The Weeds and and my Twitter feed from like non-lawyers, but more political types, and like things that legal scholars have written about certain kinds of legal problems. As we've seen the Supreme Court nominations process meltdown, and uh, you know, um, a, a lot of attention to various articles, and at the same time, there's attention to the weird way that we publish like mm. it, every time i hear legal scholarship mentioned by someone in another discipline it's like yeah but you know they can you believe the students right. select the articles they probably it, the whole system is weird and corrupt and they're like eight thousand journals and um i think some of that criticism is like is is warranted but like at, you know when you're inside the system i think you understand it a little bit better right uh i'm not defending it and as you'll hear in the show i think you know i would do things differently but um so, so there it is. Like you know, it is uh, a topic which is in some ways timely, or at least timely adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got a great guest to talk about it. So, well, I just wish we could have talked another eighteen hours. That's all. We didn't talk about my eyesight. Oh shoot! That's right. You needed to. We you, we need to have some health corner. Uh, last show, you criticized me. I did. Yes. You uh, you, you said that I needed to get. Um, Eyeglasses. I think the phrase you used were, were a prescription which met my specific eyesight needs, or something along those. So, something was it, very. Was Joe. that in a prior episode, or yeah. was that in just a private conversation we had about reading glasses? I think we've had multiple conversations no, no, about was, your need for reading. Glasses. This was in the show. Okay, I'm pretty I've forgotten sure, that detail, but I'm pretty sure had, it was in the show. I know we've talked more than once about the fact that there are prescription reading glasses that you can get that that would be good. And um, and I learned that you were wrong. Oh, okay. Um, in what respect? That the solution is basically bifocals or progressive lenses. Yes, you can. Th- that is a way to approach the provision of a reading glasses um, solution. Um, you can have a set of glasses that are neither bifocals nor progressive lenses, but are simply a reading glasses prescription separate and apart right. from the prescription you would have for seeing at, at a long distance that if you you're would, nearsighted. That example. you would only put on to read. Correct. And that's what I do. I right. have a separate pair of glasses that are just for reading. And my understanding is they basically provide magnification. And they are a prescription unique to me. And right. A unique kind of magnification for you. Correct. Yeah. So that I, I as opposed make, to just a store bought off the shelf at yeah. CVS, a pair of magnifying glass reading glasses. Yeah, my the optometrist said I could go try those if I wanted to, and, um, and it could or I could do, or I could do the progressive lenses. But she said I would feel kind of woozy probably if I use those. Yeah, progressives. You know, some people have luck with them, some people don't. Um, did did the did this uh, person say that for you a I'm gonna prescription? Cut all this out, yeah. hmm? I'm going to cut all this out. I think you are. I think so. Okay, but but let's keep going though. Um, <laughs> did this person say for you that a prescription a pair of reading glasses was like not worth trying or not worth doing? Or oh yeah, I don't need prescription reading glasses. I mean, I, I do have a. Um, a correction, it was like 1.5 or I forget exactly what it is. So, so I could use them, um, but there was, but so long as I was comfortable reading and there's absolutely no advantage uh, to using those. Um, to using any reading glasses of any kind. Right. Prescription right. or otherwise. But I could use them. 
but okay. there's no there's no particular reason to like I, I'm not at the point where it, it's uncomfortable to read or any, I have to take my glasses off right okay which means that like there would be an advantage to bifocals or progressives if I enjoyed using those mm-hmm, right because mm-hmm. then I would get the magnification of a reading glass so like right. without having to take off right the and, other vision correction and she said you know yeah. if you wanted to experiment with like you just go in and buy a pair of cheap readers and see yeah. what that's like and you know you can make it we can get the magnification just right but like um. But the upshot was that taking off my glasses, to, it, it depends on the kind of job that you have. Um, sure. So, you know, um, if you're doing a lot of like looking at people far away and things close up, like in teaching, this is kind of a problem. Like that would be the one reason for me to have bifocals because right. I stop doing this when I'm looking at my notes and looking yeah. at my students. Uh, a job like Meredith has where you're looking at notes and at patients, like and you that eye contact is very important. Yeah. Um, so for her, it's much more important to have bifocals or progressives or something. Right. Some solution to this problem. But I would be just fine if I had like no magnification. You know, it, it, I, I don't actually need a correction because it's not that bad. Um, but the progressives or a bifocal with like clear glass would be um, could be oh, an yeah. improvement if I adjusted. To, but it, she says, you know, it's weird. Um, right. Right. And I, do you have progressives? I don't. I tried that initially. And you had this woozy experience. And I, yeah. And I. It, I've, I was not successful using them at all. And so I, that's when I switched to the strategy of having a pair of prescription uh, reading glasses yeah. and a pair of prescription driving and other long distance vision glasses Yeah, um, because I'm a nearsighted person. And so I need glasses to right. see things that are farther away. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very nearsighted. So I really need those glasses, even just, just walk around and function. Yeah. Um, now, you could get by without the reading glasses if you had to, but you're more comfortable with them. Is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's a ha- it would be a real hassle not to have the reading glasses actually because you would point. really have to pay attention to how far you are from the thing. Yeah, and I and I would probably need to hold it actually. If I don't have my reading glasses on, I would actually need to hold most printed material pretty close. Oh, actually, Re- really? Yeah, it's weird. Um, huh. but, but uh. The point is, I, I like my strategy a lot. It works for me really well yeah. to have a separate pair of reading glasses and a separate pair of right. regular glasses. Um, See, that's essentially what I, that's essentially my strategy. But my reading, but, but my close vision glasses is glasses are now an empty set. Yeah, yeah right. But, and that will change. That's if, what she, if your yeah, eyeballs she, are like most people's eyeballs, that will yeah. change. She said maybe like 10 years. Okay, uh, that's great. But it just depends. And um, yeah, the, you can't avoid it. Right. But the thing with me, then the reason this came up is because uh, it's gotten a lot worse in the past. I, it feels like something started changing rapidly, like mm. in the last year. Mm. And I don't know if that's most people's experience. Like I didn't, I felt myself, you know, I've been doing this, you know, I'm, a lot I'm more lifting often. up my glasses and putting them back on. You know, I have been doing that for a while because it is like, you know, this kind of corrected long distance vision is uncomfortable to look at things up close for long periods. I think right. even if you don't have any farsightedness issues at all. Right. Um, but it's especially bad if you do have even a minor, um, problem with close up vision. Well, I'm very glad that given that you've had, that your sense was that things had been changing more rapidly. I'm very glad that you saw a professional uh, Mm -hmm. about that and to explore that because a rapid change like that could be a sign of, 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 Oh, other bad things. Yeah, and on a health I, basis, it wasn't that really rapid. I mean, I wasn't that worried, but it, but it was like, you know, it's it was like, a great occasion to see a professional to help you yeah. figure out what's going on. You, you should so do that like on, every year. Good on you. You should do that every year. Well, that's quite true for eyes, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, how much of this is driven by big eye? 
This is Health Corner, man. We're just exploring how much is driven by Big Tooth going to the dentist every year. I I haven't been to the dentist in a couple years now. These are all good questions. Two or three years. How often do you go to the dentist? Uh, You know, the regular every six month approach. Six months? Twice a year. You go to the dentist twice a year. That's the standard. I had been going once a year. I think the last time I went, I actually have one thing that is that is good about me, Joe. This may be the only thing that's good about oh, me. Oh, cool! Is I do. Have, I think there are lots of things good about I you. Do, I do. I do. Go have, ahead. I do have good teeth. Like I, I just don't get cavities. Um, Great. And you know I don't have too much problem with tartar, so I, I have pretty good teeth. Okay. And so the um, nonetheless, you know, if you go to the wrong dentist, they'll try to get you to go every six months, and they'll want to take X-rays every six months and all that. I don't need any of that. Um, okay. And so I think the last time I went, they told me I really didn't have to come back like every year. Like every other year is probably fine. Wow. That's and great. I, but I think it's been like two or three years now. So I probably should go back just to have my teeth cleaned, you know. There you go. Have them return to kind of, you know, shiny condition. <laughs> um, like polishing a car. Right. But that's when you find a dentist who's going to level with you like that, that's good. That's any health professional who's going to level with you and sort of give you really respond to you as an individual and give you the advice and the and right. true advice that's really tailored to you. Right. Rather than seeing you as a boat payment. Right. Right. Boat payment. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's... Are boats the thing? Are boats the luxury thing? I think if you're a dentist. Fascinating. I don't know. I want to see some survey evidence on that. Um, so this is stuff you might need to cut out. Why is that? Uh, we're slamming we're, health yeah, professionals. Yeah, we're smirching whole professions. We know n- we know very little about actually. Oh, I don't. That's fine. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> we just we just we we this just is definitely not in our. We just got finished, the world a better place. We just got finished slamming our own profession. Well, that's different. We know it, so we we know whereof we speak. <laughs> yeah, I just think um, we slam politicians all the time. Yeah, the the law review stuff, it really does get me going. It really does. I, I'm 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 moments away from from turning into Savile and Arolo the entire conversation. Yeah. I'm about to light a bonfire to the vanities. <laughs> uh, and it is it's interesting that it gets me that jazzed. Gets me that going. Yeah, know? in the words of the famous writer, every bit of immorality is hitched to every other bit of immorality. Mm. That's that's actually not what Okay. That's an eco. That's an ecology thing, but I think it applies. Like you know, you monkey with the system of uh, you start to try to solve the problem, and you realize that it's thoroughly corrupt. Yeah, and of course, you know these systems have their uh, have their their advocates, and and there are good reasons for the some of the choices that have been made along the way, and why mm-hmm. things worked out the way they did. Mm-hmm. Very some very good reasons, and some practices that can still be, you know, somewhat adaptive, even if they've also become a little bit maladaptive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough. I think, I think I have the right answer though. So let us allow our listeners to hear it. I think, well, the whole, in our conversation with our guests, every law school publishes, you know, on its website, the scholarship of its faculty in edited form. Okay. You work with students at your school to do the editing. Um, they, they can do the research, they can do the editing, they can get it to that polished level. Maybe there's a separate group that does editing. I don't know how it works exactly, but that's the future. That, that could be, that's a much better future. And then you could have people, like, we could publish the oral argument roundup of legal scholarship for 2018. This is sort of the playlist idea, where you're, you're collecting things. Right. But yeah. So I do think it'd be worth having a separate, ep- uh, an episode in mm-hmm. the future where we sort of envision the a kind of 
a fun blue sky envisioning of a the next generation of Larview and what mm-hmm. it could and should look like and why. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be a very fun conversation that we should have mm. in the future. Because mm-hmm. it's not the one we just had. No. And I think they're both really valuable for yeah. for different reasons. Right. Both these conversations. Right. The one that I'm imagining well, is my thought in was, the future. And, and, I'm not going to include any of this, but my, my thought was that by, it was important to mention that so that like... Listeners need to know that there's an alternative to all this mess. Totally, but at the but but at the same time, they need to. It also frames the project right as a as a as a as an evolution of a problematic system right. to something less problematic. Right. Um, but I almost can't. I almost feel like irresponsible even talking about it without mentioning uh, that I, I that saying. I think the whole thing is right is is problematic and 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 it's kind of a you know it's it's a little bit of a turns out on my end too as it was on your end that like. You know, most people cite the corruption of publishing in your home journal, right, as taking advantage of your students, right? But I, but I think that's because they're so thoroughly invested in this idea of this market functioning a certain way. Right. Right? Where actually the solution is to go entirely in that direction. Um, yeah, it's the way to defeat the, the primary vice. The primary vice is the reliance on uh, rank of... S- a journal school as a proxy for quality. Right. The way you short circuit that is publish it in the one place where people will not make that inference. Yeah. So you're you're robbing it of all power as a proxy mm-hmm. for quality. Um, but then you're letting all of these other forms bloom. Like if it became a norm that right. anybody could get together any of these articles and publish them as a bunch, as a playlist on a blog, however you're going to do it. But, you know, Everybody has the power to certify quality. Right. Maybe some people will do that. Absolutely. Like our show does that. In a way. Yeah. We're a journal. This is fascinating. We kind of are, actually. Mm -hmm. Pretty damn good one. Mind blown. (laughs) I feel like I should put all this on the show. This is is good stuff. You got to edit this, though. I'm not going to put any of it on, I think. You're not? I don't think I'm going to put the health corner on. I don't think I'm going to do any of that. The show's already kind of longish. I mean, it is the more, you know, why does anybody listen to our show? I don't it's know. Not, it's not longish. Yeah, I don't know. Do some editing, dude. I don't want to do any editing. Okay, whatever. 